Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. You are. I have been always. This has been Easter weekend. It is. This episode will be dropping Easter evening. It will. Happy Easter. Happy spring. Happy. Whatever you're into. Anything you're doing. Yeah. You're listening to episode number 80. That's crazy. Did you ever think we would be here, Dylan, with 80 episodes under our belts? No. When we first started, I definitely never thought we would do that. So 80 is a nice milestone. 20 episodes away from 100. I know. That's incredible. I feel like we have some exciting cases coming up. We do. It's going to be a great spring, summer season of mountain murders. Some different stuff, some stuff you've never heard before, which we like to do here. And I tell you, there's only one reason we're here at 80 episodes, and that is our wonderful listeners. That is true. Without you guys, we would be nothing. We would just be two weirdos in a room talking to each other. Listening to recordings of ourselves. Which is what happens like the other 99% of the time. That's true. <laughs> Thanks to our new patrons. Amity, Justin, Chelsea, and Jessica, because of these kind, generous folks, we're bringing you this brand new true crime tale. Thank Number 80, brought to you by these four lovely folks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for direct, uh, supporting us directly. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, and Patreon's a great way to do that. We know right now times are tough for a lot of folks out there. Well, that makes it even more special. We understand. So the fact that you guys have taken the time to pledge some support, throw a little money our way to help keep the show going is fantastic. It really is a bright light in all this. I gotta tell you, I am grateful that we've been safe and that we're healthy and that you've been able to keep working. I've been able to keep plugging along, but this self-quarantine type of thing I'm over it. You're over it? <laughs> I'm fucking over You've it. You've had enough? Yeah, I'm ready to move out. I'm ready to like move into my own apartment. Okay. And I'll come visit you like maybe once or twice a week. But yeah, I'm just ready to like live by myself. Yeah, I, I've kind of gotten that vibe from you. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll just go work for a week in a row. Oh, but I'm still going to be stuck here with them. Oh, yeah. You Speaking know, of them. Them? We were talking about how these damn kids are like freaking royalty no they are so you're like oh what are you doing they're like i'm sitting in my room you're like what the hell so they got their 800 phones and 800 you mean more like 1200 fucking phones unlimited data yeah and their fat ass clothes their fat ass clothes <laughs> are you like fat shaming them or do you mean like their phat you know what I mean, P-H-A-T. You mean like their name brand matching, like full Adidas outfit, like the pants and the socks and the hoodie? Yes. And this is just their loungewear? That's all the stuff they're just chilling like in. Like $130 outfit is just like their chill clothes? Yeah, and they're just hanging out and shit. I mean, my around the house clothes have holes in them, bleach stains, sweat stains, t-shirts I've had for like two decades. Yeah. Yeah. So they're little mini celebrities. <laughs> so they got built-in drivers. Yes. They have built-in um, personal shoppers. Chef. Personal chefs. Personal chefs. Yep. Um, maids. Housekeepers. Hired help. Yeah. Um, Laundry. Security. Turndown service. Like <laughs> yeah. You get a fucking mint on their pillow. What the hell? And then you ask them like, hey, do you think you can wash that one sink full of dishes there because we fed you for like three months straight? Yeah. <sighs> Oh, my God. Uh, 
Jesus. Well, they're not all my dishes. Oh, my God. It made me want to swing on a little kid. <laughs> I'm going to kick them. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else out there is feeling this, but yeah, I'm, I'm ready to not pick up after people. No. We don't want to pick up after people. Seriously, I feel like I'm just going to take a vacation from all of this. I'm going to quarantine myself into my bedroom. I'm okay. going to put a little sign on the door that's like, leave me the fuck alone. That doesn't go for me, right? With snacks. No, that goes for you too. I'll allow you in to sleep. Well, shit. And I'm just going to pile up in here. I'm going to watch all the trash TV that I love, like Ink Masters. That's pretty trashy. I fucking love that. I know. But you like 90 Day Fiance, so don't judge me. Well, at least that is about real people. I'm going to read. I'm going to finish my courses that I've been doing online. Oh, my God. Your college you found through the library? Dude, I'm so excited. I hope your public library is as awesome as our public library. I know we're getting off on a little tangent here, but hey, hey, it's okay. No big whoop among friends, right? Our public library is amazing. And since everything is shut down, essentially, they are offering... Like the entire North Carolina Digital Library, you can access that through their website, as well as you can take over 500 courses online and you can get credits. You can earn certificates and all kinds of shit. And it's like for everything you could even imagine, it's right? free. I'm taking like four creative writing types of classes. One of them is a mystery writing class. Oh, I know who's going to be the murder victim. I'm finding out how to write the great American novel. Oh, okay. Well, it's just fun, and I'm a nerd, so I love the idea of sitting here, like, doing schoolwork. We're just going to hide in the bedroom alone with Cadbury cream eggs and do schoolwork, and you people can leave me alone. You people. Oh, gosh. That's a loaded <laughs> statement. <laughs> and I'll even sit in here in my, my raggedy old pants, okay? I'm not even demanding I want some Adidas pants. I just want to be alone. Leave me alone. Just All right. So we'll, we'll, ma we'll make you some alone time here in a little while. Okay. Okay. Either that or you need to buy me some outdoor roller skates. Yeah, well, I've already tried plying you with alcohol. That didn't work. It didn't? No. Well, no, you drank it all. I didn't drink it all. He did drink it all. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Episode 80. Yeah. We have another serial killer case. This case, I've heard of this before, but I was reminded of this case by my bestie, Julie. Oh, yeah, you and Julie. Shout all... out to Julie. I know you're listening, girlfriend, and thanks for recommending this case. She had seen like a TV type of show or something, and she texted me like, have you heard of this guy? I had heard of him, but I'd kind of forgotten about him. We're going to get a little out of our mountain murders region. Yeah, but it's a, serial, it's a serial killer. We're going to go to South Carolina. Okay. Today we're talking about Larry Jean Bell. He was born in Alabama in 1948. He had three sisters and one brother. Five kids in this family. That's a pretty big family. Yeah, five kids is big enough. His family life was reportedly unstable, and I didn't get a lot of information about his childhood. They moved frequently. And so when I say unstable, they just didn't have that stability of like being in the same town for his like whole life kind of thing. I mean, they were moving a lot. He went to several schools per year. It was really hard for him. He had a hard time adjusting. You're the new kid trying to make friends. Well, that sucks. Every couple of months. Yeah, yeah. that sucks because you never do need make long-term friendships. You're always worried. And by the time you adjust and settle in, 
and can concentrate on schoolwork, boom, you move again. So that's not good for any young person. Even as a kid, Larry was considered peculiar. He had mental illness, sometimes falling into psychotic trances. Wow. This was untreated. Of course, you know, I guess maybe if you consider the time. So he's born in 48. His childhood, he would have been a kid in the 50s, early 60s. You know, I'm not sure that people were so aware of a mental illness then. No, I'd say that's still, I'm going to guess, during the time where you didn't talk about it. If you, you know, the family kept it kind of a secret. Perhaps there, you know, maybe wasn't even really a doctor in town. If you're living in some small community, they maybe didn't really know how to handle it. And again, they just thought he was an oddball that maybe, you know, wasn't until even later that he was diagnosed with a problem. As a teenager, he was discovered sexually abusing female relatives. Well, that's definitely not very good. That's not a good thing. That's very, very, very sick. Bouncing around in the South, he attended high schools in Mississippi, South Carolina. He finally graduated and then went on to earn a certificate as an electrician. He moved to South Carolina in his early 20s, got married. He fathered a son And then in 1970, he decided to join the Marine Corps. It was during this time as a Marine that he accidentally shot himself in the knee cleaning a gun and was given a discharge. He had only been in service for not even a year. Well, yeah, I'm going to guess they're like, yeah, this guy doesn't need to be a damn Marine. Oops, I shot myself. Once he's discharged from the Marine Corps, he moves back to South Carolina and he works for only a month as a correctional officer in the state prison system. Well, do you think he shot anybody while he was there? (laughs) (laughs) In the knee? I don't know. By 1976, he finds himself divorced. He's living alone. Goes back to working as an electrician. Okay, so he's always falling back on the one thing he was able to complete. In February of 1975, 19-year-old Dale Sauls Howell, a young married mother, was walking from her apartment to a shopping center, which was located around the corner of her complex, just a few feet away. She needs to buy some laundry detergent. She walks over. She notices there's a man sitting in a green Volkswagen, and she didn't think much of it until the man asked her, hey, do you want to go to Charlotte and party? Okay, that's a little weird. She tells him no, and then that's when this guy jumps out of the car, pulls a knife out and attempts to abduct Dale. And so she's probably raising hell, right? She's screaming. screaming. Other shoppers witness the commotion and immediately call the police. Bell jumps in his car, starts speeding away. He's captured at an intersection down the road from the attack. Not far at all. Well, good. At the time, Bell was living in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and he was working for Eastern Airlines in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was charged with assault and battery, but ended up taking a plea deal, which gave him five years of probation. Plus, he had to agree to mental health counseling. What the hell? What kind of damn plea deal is that? That's bullshit. By 1976, he was back in court for attacking a University of South Carolina co-ed. Wow, it's almost like he didn't learn his lesson. At this time, he was facing up to 30 years for the assault, but took another plea, which ended in more probation and mental health treatment. He did spend a few months in a mental health like facility, type of facility. I can tell you during this time, he was not only working on his mental health, allegedly, he was studying on becoming a highly organized serial killer. In 1979, 
Bell was also convicted of harassing phone calls, and these were actually obscene phone calls. Also, like the heavy breathing thing? Yeah, just he would randomly call women, or he would find a woman and focus his attention on this particular woman, find out where she lived, her phone number, and then would just start calling and, you know, saying all sorts of dirty shit. So, um, he's... Like, oh, it's me again, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like... You think it's like that? I mean, maybe. Or would it could have been like the classic Ray Stevens, like, it's me again, Margaret. I would just go with Are it. Are you naked? No, I'm just kidding. This is very, especially some a woman who might live by herself or something. Very scary thing, you know, for someone to keep calling because they have your number. You know what I mean? They know something about you, you think. In total, he only served two years of that five-year sentence he had received for probation. So he only did two years of probation. Yes. This is ridiculous. A few months in a mental health treatment facility. Okay. But he has two assault charges. Yeah, and and it's not like you got in a fight in a parking lot with somebody over a parking spot. He's trying to abduct, abduct these women, or the one he was for sure, and at Knife Point. So I think that's even calling that just assaults a little bit light in my book. Well, let's talk a little bit about South Carolina. Our case is going to take us to the easternmost part of the Deep South. South Carolina, or the Palmetto State, is rich in history, from colored pastel houses in Charleston to the old South plantations. There's beautiful coastal beaches, and you can also access the Blue Ridge Mountains in South Carolina. Charleston is by far the largest city in the state, but our story today takes place around Columbia, the capital of South Carolina, which lies in what folks call the Midlands or the Piedmont. The Piedmont area has a pine forest. Um, Much of the pine is used in the lumber industry, and there are rivers from the Piedmont that flow into the fall line, which drops down to the coastal plains. This fall line is pretty important for creating a lot of electricity, which has encouraged growth in the city's around, including Columbia. Oh, so there's like hydroelectric projects in those areas? And one of the reasons why I bring up the area itself, you know, just to talk a little bit about it, is because our story today, this is important, is talking about South Carolina's heat. It's hot. If anyone who's listening knows anything about South Carolina, you will know that there is extreme heat and subtropical humidity. I mean, there is a mugginess that hangs in the air, thick mugginess. I'm going to tell you, it smacks you in the damn face when you get out of the car. And in a city like Columbia, there's not a lot of shade. It's like a concrete jungle. It is hot as fuck down there. I mean, we're talking like 100 degree plus days. Yeah, I don't know what it is about there. I don't know if it's in a slight depression, you know, topography right through there or what, but it's like, oh my God. It's a special kind of hot around, around Columbia. It really is, and, and the heat is important, and we'll get into that here in a minute on why the heat is important in this story. Because we're talking about a particular day here, May 31st, 1985. And I bring up the temperature because this was a hot day. I'm talking blistering heat. Okay. In some places, the temp was hovering around 100 degrees, and this was in 1985. And even though some people are like, oh, there's no climate change, we know that if it's 100 degrees and 85, how hot is it now (laughs) in Columbia? It's hot as fuck. No matter what's making it change, it's definitely different, right? Sherry Faysmith, a beautiful 17-year-old blonde, had gone to a pool party with her boyfriend, Richard. The pair had met at the Lexington Post Office earlier in the day. 
The two had gone to the bank where Sherry's mom worked around 11.30 a.m. to pick up some traveler's checks. See, Sherry was graduating on Sunday and planned to go to the Bahamas on a graduation trip. Sherry and Richard rode together to Lake Murray where they were going to have this swim, like, pool party. Sherry was wearing a swimsuit, shorts, and a tank top. Sherry called her mother around 2.30 from the party to let her know she was leaving. She left with Richard, a friend named Brenda, and they drove to the parking lot where she left her car earlier in the day. Richard and Sherry spent a few minutes in the parking lot saying goodbyes, canoodling before the two depart in separate vehicles. Ooh. Here we are, two high school kids, graduation weekend, Spending this Friday, they got out of school like early in the morning, early dismissal. They're going to go to the swim party, hang out with friends. How exciting. You're getting traveler's checks. You're going to the Bahamas. Well, then that sounds awesome. Right? I mean, it's like, damn, talk about your whole life is ahead of you. The world is your oyster. Well, I'm sure that's the way they felt. You know, they're kicking off the summer. They're going to have this big trip together. They're in love. Yeah. And um, they're graduating high school. So, you know, you just think about all the possibilities that, you know, could happen here in the future. On her way home, Sherry stops at the end of her family's driveway to check the mailbox. I mean, just pause for a moment and think of the number of times on the way home any of you have pulled up to your mailbox. It's probably not very far from your house. Maybe you stop the car, you climb out to check the mail. You do it every day. I do this all the time. And I should mention that she was only about one-tenth of a mile from her house. Not far at all. So almost probably in view, maybe. It definitely was. Right. Later, her father noticed Sherry's car, which was a Chevette, still parked at the mailbox. He walked down to check on her. The door was open. The engine was running. No sign of Sherry. Oh, my God. Her father immediately knew something was amiss. Her black jellies, remember jelly shoes? I do. They were still in the car along with her towel and purse. So all her stuff's in the car, including her shoes that she likely was wearing. Car's running, door's open, and she's nowhere to be around. She's nowhere to be found. Yes. That is, oh my God. I can only imagine what's going through his mind at this point. Sherry was a happy, stable girl who had a good home life. It was not likely she had ran away, not to mention she had uh, diabetes, and it was a really rare form that some people call water diabetes. Oh, I've never heard of that one, but okay. She relied on medication and large amounts of water to manage her condition. She had to drink gallons of water. And she had to have her medicine. Yes, every day. Her father could see the medication was still in Sherry's purse. Just one more thing. Bare footprints led from the car to the mailbox, but there were not return prints back to the car. Okay. Also, Sherry's big day was coming up on June 2nd. She was graduating from high school. She had been tasked with singing the Star Spangled Banner at the ceremony. This just wasn't like... A little thing. And this is a big deal. She's singing in front of the entire graduation ceremony. She's a really popular girl. Yeah, it's a, the whole school and part of the community. I mean, her dad knows that she didn't just like hop in the car with Richard and take off. Well, no, she doesn't have any of her stuff, her purse, medicine, anything. Fraught with worry, Richard returns to the house, 
is trying to tell his wife what happened. They're both panicked, as you can imagine. They do a cursory search of the house. The Smiths could see that their daughter had vanished. She was nowhere in the house or around the property. Okay, so they, man, I could, I would be so scared as a parent or as any family member. Her parents file a missing persons report almost immediately. Now, in interviews, her father would describe her as the glue of the family. He said she was so happy-go-lucky, always smiling, laughing. I mean, they just loved, like, the whole family just loved her because she was just so full of life and fun to be around and sweet. So this was just devastating. And her mother, of course, was very upset when Cherry went missing. The Smiths were a prominent family in Lexington County, South Carolina. They were well-liked, respected. Sherry's disappearance sparked the largest manhunt in South Carolina history. Wow. The next day, the family got a phone call from a man claiming to have Sherry and demanding money for her return. Relieved, her parents were ready to pay the ransom. So they're just glad to have any information about she's alive and some possible way of getting her back. So if it sparked the largest manhunt, so they didn't do the old, she must have run away. Oh, imagine that as a prominent family with some damn clout in the community. However, this call was a hoax. Oh, so they figured that out quickly. Pretty quickly realized this is not a legit phone call. They're heartbroken. Well, that's even worse. Some false hope. After she was missing for almost 48 hours, another phone call comes into the Smith home. This is around 2.30 a.m. A man's voice, muffled, disguised, said that he had snatched Sherry. He described the yellow and black swimsuit she'd been wearing, which led Mrs. Smith to believe this one was, in fact, Sherry's kidnapper. He said she was okay, drinking lots of water, and had just been hanging out watching TV with him. Oh, all right. He told the Smiths to expect a letter soon. Hangs up. So once again, they have hope. The family appears on the local television news, pleading for the return of Sherry. The community is shaken. The safety of women and girls everywhere rocked. I mean, Sherry was taken from her own front yard with her father inside the house. So first and foremost, you know, police know they've got an assailant that is brazen. Yeah, definitely. Daring. Because that takes some, I don't know, some special, like, gumption to just pull up in front of somebody's house and snatch them in broad daylight. Well, that, that, either you're that great, you know, unstable that you're not thinking straight, or you're very, you know, just uh, you're sure that you can pull this off. A letter did arrive, and it was postmarked June 1st, which was the day after Sherry had gone missing. It was in Sherry's handwriting written on a yellow legal pad, and it read as a last will and testament. Oh, my goodness. In the letter, she expressed love for her family. She asked them not to let this affect the rest of their lives and told them to turn to God and trust in the Lord. She also made statements that everything happens for a reason. She did ask for a closed casket at her funeral. Can you imagine the heartbreak as a parent, receiving this kind of letter from your daughter, horrible. It's going to be fucking horrible. Yeah, seeing this, knowing it's written in her, you know, that she's actually writing it in her handwriting and stuff. 
that oh my to even have those thoughts. Can you imagine this them? poor girl being forced to write this? No, knowing what her fate is, it's disgusting. Another phone call arrives, and the mail caller he's like a nut. He starts calling this family constantly, like having these conversations with them, like he's part of the family or knows them. Well, he's totally getting off on this. Yeah. He says chilling things like, your daughter is now a part of me. Mind, body, soul, spiritually, our souls are now one. What the hell does that even mean? Yeah. Bell describes to Sherry's sister Dawn in detail how he kidnapped Sherry at gunpoint, raped and sodomized her, then wrapped her head in duct tape to suffocate her. Then he threatened Dawn, like, you're next, I'm going to do this to you. Oh my God, they need to find this maniac. Police attempt to trace these phone calls, but when they do actually get a tracer, it's a public phone nearly 20 miles away from the Smith's home. And of course, by the time they get law enforcement to this payphone, the caller is gone. Yeah, and I'm going to guess he's at least smart enough to not come back to that phone. The FBI gets called in and begins doing a profile. Like, um, you know, a blah, blah. <laughs> the FBI is called in and they begin forming a profile of this man. They said he was likely homely, chubby, above average intelligent, and probably a white male. They also said he probably lived alone and was single. Oh, wow. Until that single part, they were describing me. He called a third time on June 5th, directing Sherry's family to a spot 18 miles away from their home where they would find the body. Sherry's body, fully dressed, was found behind a Masonic lodge in a wooded tree line near Saluda, South Carolina. It was impossible to determine how she died. Her body was so badly decomposed in the extreme temperatures outside, as well as infested with insects, that they just couldn't really put together a cause of death. So just that quick. Because she hadn't been out there all that long, right? No, very quickly. Wow. Though Sherry's body was recovered, the phone calls didn't end. It was suspected she died of suffocation or perhaps dehydration due to her diabetes. When her family asked the burning question on one of those phone calls, why? Like, why did you do this to our daughter? Belle's response was, it got out of hand. She very well could have died because of her medical complications. You know, not saying that this asshole wasn't doing stuff to her, but I'm thinking maybe. Because, you know, even if she's drinking a lot of water, she still needs her medicine. Nine days after Sherry's body was found, a nine-year-old blonde girl named Deborah May Helmick was taken outside her family's home at the Shiloh Trailer Park, where she was playing with her siblings. The man, driving a car, snatched her in broad daylight The girl was kicking, screaming, and fighting to get away from the man. He picked her up by the waist and tossed her in the car. She continued fighting him until a neighbor, hearing the noise, ran out of his trailer and tried to stop the car. The neighbor got within 40 feet of Bell. He tried to catch the license plate, but all he got was the letter D. He did note the make and model of the call and immediately called police, alerting them as to what happened and giving them the information he had. 
Damn, so here you go again, snat- literally snatching a kid in broad daylight. In a trailer park. Around, you know, yeah. Where they're, I mean, most people know a trailer park is these trailers are kind of like right there on top of each other. Yeah. So neighbors and other ki- I mean, people are going to see, there's going to be witnesses. I wish somebody run out with a gun and shot his crazy ass. The phone calls started again, but to the Smith family, not Deborah's family. So he's calling the first family again? Eventually, a call came in with the exact location on where to find Deborah's body. Much like Sherry, decomposition made it difficult to determine the cause of death. So this poor family can't even deal, process their loss of their own child. And he's calling them, telling them about having someone else's child? Terrorizing them, yes. What a sicko. In their moment of grief. That's horrible. Again, this was the beginning of a hot South Carolina summer. Deborah was fully dressed in shorts and a lavender t-shirt, but detectives noted she had a pair of adult women's underwear pulled up over the top of her, like, child's underwear. She had duct tape on her mouth. It was speculated that she died of suffocation, likely the same as Sherry. A single pink hair barrette was found on her. Mrs. Helmick told officers the morning her daughter disappeared, she had washed the little girl's hair and had placed these two pink barrettes in her hair. Okay. Although there were no dental records available for Deborah, her mother provided two footprints from when she was born, as well as a thumbprint card she had had made when the family was living in Ohio. Well, that's what happens in lower-income families who don't have access to dental care. Well, and remember in the 80s, there was, like, such a big campaign to do those thumbprint cards for kids? Yeah. After the Adam Walsh? disappearance i remember they would send them home from school yeah they they really did a big push to have like all kids do these thumbprint cards those were used to make an id it was in fact deborah her funeral was on wednesday june 26 13 days after her abduction and 27 days after sherry went missing man what a sicko Larry Bell was caught in an interesting way. With little evidence, the FBI focused on the letter written by Sherry. They were able to use a device called an ESDA, which could identify residual impressions left on paper. They found a few phone numbers scribbled on this legal pad. Oh, yeah. So it's like that game you do where you take a pencil and kind of do a cross like a rubbing. They found an elderly couple, the Shepherds, who admitted... One of the numbers belonged to them, and there was another phone number found on the pad that was in Alabama, and it was for their son, who was a soldier. And he had an alibi. I mean, he was on duty. There was no reason for the FBI to suspect it was this couple or the son. All right. These people and their son ruled out, but the FBI begins describing to them what had happened, perhaps the suspect the profile, who they thought they were looking for, the details that had been provided by the witness in the trailer park. The make and model of the car. Immediately, the couple said, that sounds like Larry Bell, an electrician who sometimes would house it for us. Well, there you go. Larry Jean Bell worked for Mr. Shepard doing electrical work while he and his wife were away for an eight-week vacation. He picked up the Shepherds from the airport They recalled when he did this, all he wanted to do was talk about the missing girl in South Carolina. Well, that's weird. When police examine the shepherd's home, they find blonde hairs consistent with Sherry's inside the house. So this maniac took her, 
abducted her and took her to their house while he's house-sitting. Yes. What a fucking weirdo. A commemorative duck stamp was used to mail Sherry's letter, and they happened to find those same stamps in Mr. Shepard's desk drawer. All right. Enough evidence was discovered to link Bell to both murders. When he was arrested, he made no fuss. He actually asked officers, is this about the two missing girls? He's so wrapped up in his own bullshit. Can I call my mama? Oh, poor guy. During his interrogation, he said, I don't think the Larry Jean Bell sitting here could have done this, but the bad Larry Jean Bell may have. Oh, so he's trying to act like there's two hymns? He admitted to doing nothing. He didn't confess to anything. Oh, is he like a low-rent Ted Bundy? Soon after his arrest, he hinted at knowing something about a missing Charlotte woman named Sandy Cornette. Cornette had met Belle at a party she was throwing for a friend. Belle lived near Cornette while he was working for Eastern Airlines. This was about seven months before Sherry was abducted. The woman vanished from her home, leaving behind keys, television on, and her purse. She was reportedly wearing a blue jogging suit, which was something she only wore around the house. People described her as, like, very put-together kind of woman. And she was, like, a part-time model. So she never left the house looking raggedy. Oh, so she always had her makeup did? Yes. Hair right? Decked out, dressed nice to the nines. Yes. Okay. So when she goes missing in this blue jogging suit, everybody said, uh, yeah, that's not something she would do unless it was like an absolute emergency or someone had taken her. Right. This is not her. Sandy had been an insurance adjuster and, as I mentioned, a part-time model. Now, Larry Bell never gave any solid information about Sandy, and her body has never been found. So he just brought her up. He's just trying to grow his own legend. He's such an asshole. Bell was also the suspect, but never charged in two other cases out of Charlotte. So did it say if he brought those up, or are they just going to throw those on him? In 1975, a Wake Forest University graduate who spent time working in South America... And she had dreams of becoming a U.N. translator, was walking on Tyvola Road in Charlotte near her apartment. She goes missing. It was not until 2012 through DNA technology that a match was made in her case. Her name was Priscilla Blevins. Now, a connection was made to bones that were discovered in 1985 off of Mile Marker 8, Interstate 40, in Haywood County. Oh, shit. Near the North Carolina-Tennessee line. That's by our house. It sure as fuck is. <laughs> That's up the road not very far at all. That's weird. Dental records confirm the identification. I mean, I guess sometimes people who are lost make their way home. Wow, what an interesting career path she had lined out for herself. Translator for the UN. I mean, that's interesting. Very accomplished young woman. Yeah, she must have been. And her sister for years pushed to find her. And when DNA started, like, becoming a thing, I mean, her sister was just on police and law enforcement, like, we need to do this. We need to find my sister. It's so interesting, Dylan, as you mentioned, this is incredibly close to our house. Yeah, We live in Haywood County, North Carolina, I-40, that corridor. It is a known spot for dumping bodies. There has happened more than once over the years. There have been multiple bodies found. And body parts. 
carted off the roadside roadside there on Interstate 40. Hands, feet. Yeah. One time it was a, a fire. I knew a officer who worked for the local police department years and years ago. They found an entire leg. Just a leg. Just a leg. Yeah, you got to figure that uh rest of that body's got to be around here somewhere. Yeah. Could you imagine that shit? Just finding a body part? If you have a blowout on your tire and, you know, you end up on the side of the road and, and you know, little Johnny's got to go over there and take a pee on by the tree there and there's a damn leg. It reminds me of the David Lynch film Blue Velvet. Yeah. When the guy finds the ear. Yeah. Just, like, hanging out. That would totally freak me out. It's, like, just chilling in the grass with, like, some bugs and worms on it. Yeah, that would freak me out so bad. Yeah. I think finding a body part might freak me out more than finding, like, the whole body. The body part would totally freak me out worse than the whole body. Yeah. Because I'd be like, where the hell's the rest of the body? I know. That I could never stop thinking about that. Bell was a suspect in another unsolved case. Denise Porch was a property manager for an apartment building located on Tyvola Road in Charlotte. Denise was a newlywed who had just celebrated her first wedding anniversary with a beach trip. She was last seen showing a man an apartment. Now, it was noted he was driving a foreign vehicle, though there were no exact confirmations about what kind of vehicle that might have been. And this was shortly after Priscilla Blevins' disappearance, within a month. She was never seen again. It should be noted that Larry Jean Bell lived in the Yorktown apartments where Denise was the property manager. And though no real connection can ever be made to Porch, Bell was a prime suspect in her case as well. I did find an article online which claimed Bell had made comments that he had buried Porch's body in Cherokee County, North Carolina, which would be an interesting connection to the Priscilla Blevins case. It would show that he had discarded two of the victims in western North Carolina. Yeah, that would. That he might have some knowledge of this area. Well, I think this man has proven that no matter if he's trying to, you know, make himself seem bigger and badder, he definitely is willing to go all the way with this sick stuff that he does. And I think you have to wonder or try to make a connection to him around any woman that disappears. disappears. Well, I think you also have to ask, is Sherry the first victim? Right. I mean, around this time, in the late mid to late 70s, is when he tried abducting the first victim, Dale, and then later the University of South Carolina student. Then you have these women all living in the same area, neighbors to Bell, essentially, that go missing, never yep. found again. And I'm thinking, okay, well, did he abduct those women, murder them, discard their bodies, get rid of them? And then he was upset because he didn't get the glory. So the next time he decided he was going to contact the family, well, it make could a be. big production. Could be his version of the BTK. Or you like know? Zodiac. He was totally like, people need to look at me. People need to talk about me. And he kept on and on. That's what got him caught, thank God, because he was so brutal. But yeah, I don't, you know what? This guy didn't learn his lesson in the beginning when he was practicing violence towards women. That's for sure. I'm sure that wouldn't have stopped him, but, you know, maybe his ass could have went to jail for five or six years instead of getting probation and then not even serving all the damn probation. During the trial, Bell used the opportunity to make a sideshow of the courtroom. He played up this whole crazy man card, making off-the-wall statements like he would just randomly say, Mona Lisa was a man. Oh, that's not even good. 
and would often answer questions with, silence is golden, my friend. That's not even like a good fake crazy. He also declared he was going to marry Sherry's sister, Dawn Smith. His court-appointed psychiatrist claimed that Bell had smeared himself with excrement, claimed he was Jesus Christ, and drank his own urine. I don't mean shit. One doctor believed Bell suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, which had gotten worse with age. Prosecutors were quick to point out that Bell's behavior was merely a ploy to keep him from receiving the death penalty. Yeah, so there'd be no other issues in his life. Can't bring any loved ones on to say, yeah, he did this. There's no record of it. Well, he did have a relative, and I'm not quite sure if it was his mother or a sister, who described he had psychotic trances as a child. Yeah, I'm not even sure what that is. Exactly. But no one else in his life had seen any of this type of behavior. It really only started when he got arrested. Yeah, imagine that. He was eventually found guilty and given a death sentence. On death row, he was described as a nuisance. He was always disturbing the peace, screaming and telling everyone he was the son of God. Well, I can tell you right now, the other inmates did not care for that. They don't like the screamers. He was convinced the electric chair in which he chose to die, he picked the electric chair over the um, lethal injection. Well, they let him choose? Yes. Was made of true blue oak, the same as Jesus Christ's cross. He told everyone when he sat down on the chair, the 2,000 volts of electricity would allow him to ascend to God's throne. Oh, yeah. He's like um, Heaven's Gate people, right? He just cut his dick off. October 4th, 1996, he was strapped down to the electric chair. And guess what? Silence was golden because he didn't say a goddamn thing. <laughs> he didn't have nothing to say anymore? As loud as he was on death row, he never broke his silence about why he had killed Sherry and Deborah. After his execution, a crowd gathered to watch the hearse carrying Bell's body away from the Broad River Correctional Institute. They were just cheering. I thought the cross was made out of a dogwood tree. One of his attorneys said, We have executed a sick, delusional, psychotic man. Yeah. Sick in a way that he needs to be electrocuted. Dawn Smith, Sherry's sister, competed in the Miss South Carolina pageant one year after her sister's murder. She won the pageant and placed second in the Miss America pageant the following year, which would have been 87. Wow. She is now a public speaker and singer. She's used this opportunity to really speak out on forgiveness and to talk about her sister and how if you're family of a victim that you can find peace yeah yeah i can't i can't speak on that that works for her i just won't say anything about it i don't think i could go that same path a lot of people really find her inspirational but yeah that's good cbs made a television movie called victim of beauty the don smith story which aired in 1991 there's also a lifetime movie called nightmare in columbia county which is actually how I discovered this case initially. I saw this made-for-TV Lifetime movie on this case years ago. Really? Yes. And it's always stuck out in my mind because of the sister who went on to compete in the beauty pageants. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a book, which I also used as a resource for the story, Murder in the Midlands, and another book called Carolina Crimes. What an asshole. Right? What's his full name again? Larry Jean Bell. Larry Jean Bell. He's got one of those asshole names. Why do serial killers all seemingly have these like three 
like these three part names. There's these kind of harmonic names. Bell, that it goes John together. Wayne Gacy. Yeah. I mean, have you noticed that there's it, a lot of those? It's guys? true. Yeah. Well, you've reached the end of another Mountain Murders Appalachian True Crime podcast episode, episode number 80. You can connect with us at www.mountainmurderspodcast.com or sign up for our Patreon to access bonus content. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Google Play. You can also find us on Spotify. We're on YouTube too, y'all. Until next time, stay safe.